I'm really excited to be going through Isaiah with you. Talking about Isaiah and teaching Isaiah as it comes out of my mouth, I think I'm taking this beautiful flower and I'm kind of crushing it, right? <laughs> it's this amazing literary masterpiece uh, that I'm trying to condense down into three sermon points and an application, right? And, and um, you know, that's, that's what we're supposed to do for sure so we can apply it in our lives, but this book is truly, truly amazing. As I study it, I have to believe that it's a massive understatement to say that Isaiah was a literary genius. Not only was he inspired by the Holy Spirit as a prophet, but the writing of this prophet was simply amazing. His book is not one linear story. Remember, when you read the Bible, you've got to understand what genre it is you're reading. Is it a narrative, which is usually a long story? Uh, is it uh, the linear train of thought in the letters in the New Testament um, but this is not any of those things. It's more like, um, have you guys ever seen those mosaics, right? You can create these online where you take all your pictures in iPhoto, and what they do is they put them all together, and through all those pictures, they create one big picture. You guys know what I'm talking about? Mosaics, right? And this is kind of like how Isaiah is structured. Is He's got all these tiny little beautiful, wonderful poems and literary masterpieces that he created and probably spoke and, and circulated on paper to the people. Um, but then at a certain point, the Holy Spirit um, guided him to combine them into this book that we have with us. And we'll talk about that structure more as we go. But this is why Isaiah was known as the greatest of the written prophets. And there will be a balance as we read Isaiah. I, uh, full honesty with you guys, I've struggled with putting this teaching together because there's this balance I want to give you of the simplicity of the truth of what Isaiah is saying. And at the same time, I want to show you the amazing beauty and structure of what he's doing because the structure itself points us to a truth. We are so literal in America, we take what is the content, but the very structure of what he writes points us to the truth just as much as the words do. So throughout Isaiah, I'm going to do my best to both help you understand its contents as well as its form, and today's text will be one of those, okay? So you guys ready for this? This is more of a Bible study today than it is just a, a preaching, right? You ready for this? So the first thing that we're going to need to look at today, we studied this a long time ago in Leviticus. Most of you will probably not remember this, but we need to understand a, a way that they used to, to speak and write in the olden days, okay? And so the, the thing I want you to write down here today is this. Write down this word, chiasm. Most of you are never going to use this again. Um, you're never going to actually use this in general speech, and probably you, many of you are thinking, why do I have to write this word down if I'm never going to use it? Well, this is a way that they talked often, and they spoke often in literature of the day of Isaiah. And in the West, we like to be very, very literal and linear, okay? So this is kind of how we think. Everybody look up at the screen here. If you're being taught how to take notes uh, at school, this is how they taught you. Thought one, sub-bullet point one, sub-sub-bullet point one, right? Very linear, Okay one line, and then you just stop, put on the brakes, and then what do you do? You start a second thought, sub-bullet point one, sub-bullet point two, right? So it is really hard for us to suddenly jump into Isaiah and go, oh, hey, I get what he's saying. Why? Because they didn't usually talk in that way. The rabbis would actually, uh, even in Jesus' day, would say the verse before and the verse after the verse that they were talking about. They wouldn't even say the verse they're talking about. They would say, you should know this because you have the Torah memorized. Here's the one before it. Here's the one after it. That's what I'm talking about. That makes sense. Yeah, sure, right? It 
It's completely crazy for us. And so what it would look like in the Near Eastern thought is more like this. A1, B1, C1, back on out, C2, B2, A2. Now, why would they do this? Well, because they were very circular in a lot of their thoughts. And you can think about it this way, okay? For the iPhone generation, here we go. You guys know how to do this. You take your fingers and you zoom out and you zoom in. It's very similar to that. See, they're zooming in to a focus and then they zoom out of that focus. And within looking at that literary piece, you're supposed to understand that they're trying to focus in on the point between the two trains of thought. Now, we might look at this and go, this is absolutely crazy, I don't get this, but to understand a lot of the Bible, you have to get this. So you can think about it still linearly, but just realize there's a line going to the focus and a line coming away from the focus, okay? And you'll understand this more as we go throughout um, the teaching today. So, Um, The second thing we have to understand is, uh, as we've been talking over the last month and a half, we've spent a lot of time to understand the worldview of Isaiah. This is part of the worldview of Isaiah, but also there's the worldview of kings and kingdoms. Now, for those of you who love, you know, Lord of the Rings, um, that is not a great understanding of kings and kingdoms. I know that that's where we immediately go with our thoughts, but remember that we talked about this last week. When we look at what Isaiah is talking about, we have to realize that a kingdom— has a king that's by covenant, okay, he's in covenant with his people, he's ruling by a law, and his people are to be his image bearers to the world around him, okay? And these things are very, very, very important for us to understand as we go into Isaiah. And I know some of you might go, oh man, there's always so much background we have to understand. It's very, very true. To step into Isaiah, uh, even the, the newest, earliest Christian can totally glean truth out of Isaiah. That is absolutely true. The Bible is wonderful because uh, I've heard it said before, it's kind of like a pool, right? There's the shallow end and then there's the deep end. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to take you into a little bit more of the deep end. So please don't feel, oh man, I don't know all this background. I don't know how this goes. I can never read Isaiah. Absolutely not. Read Isaiah over and over and over as we're going through this. Because the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, is going to give you insight into it. But then also couple that with what we go through on Sundays. Because I want to take you into the depth of what Isaiah is doing. And so last week we looked at this model. And we said that the model of the king, Yahweh, was to lead the people of God in following the law of God to be his image bearers to the world. This is what Israel was to be. We saw this in Deuteronomy. We've seen it over and over again. God is our king by covenant that he will not break. He's ruling by his law of love, and he has asked his people to spread his image, his character throughout the world in the way we love one another. We good there? Everybody got that so far? A lot of that's refresh. So this is what Israel was to be, a kingdom of priests and kings. And so when we look at this idea and we understand it, we can go back in the overall narrative of Scripture and we can start to see this idea forming. So let's take this idea that God is creating out of Israel a kingdom of priests and kings to go be his image. And let's go back and let's see when he did that, okay? Go back with me to Genesis 11. And if you're not there already, you can start in verse 1. And we have this odd story that we've covered before, but it's good to refresh it. Verse 1 of chapter 11. We know that so far in the story, there was sin in the garden. 
the world started in on that sin so heavily that God had to bring a flood in order to destroy all the evil. He raised up one group of people out of Noah, and then time passed, and the world began to again embrace sin. In verse 1 of chapter 11, it says this, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. There were many people on the earth, but they all had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Okay, this is present-day Iraq, Iran area, okay? And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. This was a new technology for them. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, we know right away from the context of the early part of the Bible that this is not good. Why? Because God commanded them to disperse. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Why? To take his name to the ends of the earth. But mankind, we wanted to rebel. We wanted to create our own temple, our own city, our own religion, our own name. And so what they started to do was they built this tower. And this tower was basically what we know today as kind of like a pyramid. It's called a ziggurat, okay? Many of the places that you go in the Middle East or even South America, you see the Mayan ruins. It's this tower. And what it is, is it's a monument to God that's basically asking God to come down to the people. It's an invitation to the God you're worshiping. Well, God comes down. It says right away, it says, and the Lord came down. But what we know from this is that This tower was not built to invite Yahweh. Why? Because he comes down on his own volition, not because he was invited. And he comes down and he says, he comes to see what the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And that's not a good thing. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, he says, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Now, this is grace. This is mercy to disperse the people, break them apart, help them not to be able to continue in the evil that they can do when they speak each other's language. And so it says the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel or Bavel in the, the Hebrew because that, uh, there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So these people come together. They say, we want a name for ourselves. We want to be the, the ones that are God, that are, that are the ones that are making, uh, calling the shots and making the decisions. And from there, we have this passage that goes on down where he zooms in, okay, just like we talked about. He takes this big view of the nations of the earth, and then he zooms down into one small people group. And this people group is found in that same area of the land, a place called Ur of the Chaldees, and it's the family of Abraham. Okay? How many of you have ever heard of Father Abraham? Raise your hand. Okay? Now shake it, all right? and then raise the other one, and shake it. Right? Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had... Okay, you guys got me. Okay, good. All right, so Father Abraham, we come down to him. Who is he? Well, he's uh, the father of this small, small group of people that will eventually grow into the kingdom of priests and kings. 
Now look at what he says here. He takes him uh, out of uh, his land, which is uh, the land of, you can even go there today, guys. This is what's so cool about the Bible. You can go to where Abraham is from today. It's in Iraq, so take your flak jacket. And you can see the base of a ziggurat that was there for idol worship in the days of Abraham. They've restructured it and rebuilt it. But it is to a god, interestingly enough, that was the moon god. Funny, don't they still worship the crescent moon god there? Okay? So you could still go there today and you could see this ziggurat, this temple that's created there. And so he asks Abraham to step away from all that idolatry, step away from that understanding of the world. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 12, go ahead and turn there, Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. Now we think, oh, no big deal. Everybody does that in the United States, right? That's like, cool, let's go travel the world. No, this was basically saying, cut all of your ties, leave all of your family behind, leave all of your income behind, leave everything and follow me. Funny, that's kind of what Jesus told people, right? And so he continues and he says, and I will make your name, uh, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so we have this beautiful picture right at the beginning of the Bible that the nations of the world rebelled against God. And so God reached in by his gracious sovereignty and said, I'm going to select somebody. I'm going to pull somebody out of all the rest of the nations and they are going to be my chosen people. He chose Abraham and he said, I am going to give you a name. See, we've always wanted a name. We tried to steal the name at Babel. God's okay with names. It's that he's the one that's supposed to give them. So he chose these people. And he said, you are going to be the great nation. Now, you guys know the story between Genesis 12 and Isaiah. Did that go well? Did Israel stand up and fulfill their their job to bring the character and the image of God to the world around them? No, they didn't. Now, obviously, we know what happened as we look through the story. And as we look last week, even in the midst of all their sin, what God does is he continues to reach in. He provides for them. He frees them from slavery in Egypt. He gives them his law to be his own special people. Israel was to be this people, special in all the earth, bringing the reign of Yahweh to bear. And we see this as we look at the nations and we zoom in to this special people. But the problem is, is they didn't do it. And as we learned last week, Isaiah steps in on the scene of this situation at the call of God to speak truth to God's people and draw them to repentance. Now let's go to Isaiah, and we're going to be here the whole rest of the time. Because Isaiah himself is complicated enough, we're going to just stay in Isaiah today. Isaiah steps on the scene. And in chapter 1, all the way through what we're going to cover today, chapter 2, verse 4, I believe we see Isaiah, through the inspiration of the Spirit, using all of this background, all of this worldview, the structure of the chiasm that we talked about, to give us a hope, a hope of Jesus' kingdom, and he's going to give us one question. And this is going to be the anchor for today, because I know I've already probably confused some of you. So, if you're confused, focus in on this, one question, who rules your life? 
Another way to put it is this, who rules you? So at any point today, if you get completely confused, I want you to go back to this anchor point and realize this is what we're talking about. Who rules your life? Okay? So if I confuse you, that's where you go. Isaiah steps on the scene, and he, in essence, within the first chapter, I know we talked about it last week, but I want to give you a different view of it this week. He paints the same picture. He takes all of this information and he repaints everything from Genesis 1 all the way through in a really amazing way. And what he tells us is this. You can write this first bullet point down. Judah had become just like the rebellious kingdoms of the world. Judah had become just like the rebellious kingdoms of the world. See, what we find out about all of those nations that were dispersed, and it would take me an hour to paint this for you, but it is in the Bible in massive quantities, is that when God dispersed the people of Babel out across the earth, he didn't just do it randomly. He dispersed them according to nation states, and he did so according to the God that they served. Every nation or group of people has a God that it serves, or a multitude of gods that they serve. In essence, what God did is he graciously said, you guys want to serve other gods than me? I will give you over to them, but realize I will allow the natural consequences of the brokenness that comes from that. And many wars, much much conflict happened because of groups fighting against each other because they hated one another's deities. You might even see people's bumper stickers coexist. There's still this idea and understanding that religion causes conflict. And I would say, absolutely right. Because there's only one true God. And there's only one true faith. And Judah, rather than being selected out of these nations that idolized foreign lowercase g gods, okay, demons in essence, They started to fall in line with those idols, as we'll see through the first few chapters. And Judah had become just like the rebellious kingdoms of the world. And so how does Isaiah paint this for us? Well, look at chapter 1, verse 2. Look at where he starts. And I want you to think geographically here. I want you to think location. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. Where does he start? Right here. He starts at the whole world. Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And we know that God is the king, the ruler, the creator of this world. And so he starts there and he says, let's talk about the heavens and the earth. Let's talk about how they can give witness to what's going on. And then he continues on and he says, children I have reared. And the Bible talks about how God has not begotten us, but he has adopted us. He has taken Israel, Judah specifically, out of the peoples of the world. And he said, you are mine, but yet, what does it say about them? They rebelled against him. And he says, Israel, this is the end of verse 3, does not know, my people do not understand. We start from this big picture and we start to zoom in. We start to look at Israel. And he's going to go from Israel down further. He starts with Israel, the nation of Israel. And then he zooms in even more. He says, verse 4, notice his wording, ah, a sinful nation. He went from the world down to the nation of Israel. And he says to them, guys, you got to knock it off. Verse verse 7, your country lies desolate 
And then he moves even deeper. Your cities are burned with fire. Which city specifically is he talking about? Verse 8, the daughter of Zion, a nickname for this city up here, Jerusalem. I want you guys to look at the screen here. He's moved from the earth and the heavens because he's creator and king of all, down to his selected people, down to the city that is their capital. What do you guys see is the biggest thing in the midst of that city, at the heart of that city? What is it? It's the temple. It's the temple. You see, the way that nation states uh, lived, um, and I would say still live, is that their capital is the heart of their country, and in the heart of the capital is the, is the, the temple of the God that they worship. Now, what's amazing is, is that the architects of America even, in order to build the monuments of our founding fathers, they went to idolatrous temples in Greek for the architecture, design, and structure. You go see the Abraham Monument. Abraham is sitting in, or not the Abraham Monument, I'm sorry, Abraham Lincoln. There we go. Lincoln Monument. What is he sitting in? A throne. He's sitting in a throne. And most idolatrous temples were structured in a way where they would have the columns, you'd go in, and in the center of the idolatrous temple would be a throne that was empty because that's where the God was to descend and sit. At the heart of the capital, that was the heart of the country, you would find the heart of their worship. What do they worship? And I have said for years that our country is not a country of Jesus followers because we don't follow the Bible, we follow the Constitution. And we don't have the apostles or the disciples, we have the founding fathers. And we have our own moral code that has very relatively little to do with this Bible. And yes, there is some overlap, but the reality is that most of our founding fathers were deists. They did not worship Jesus Christ. And many of us might even, Hans, you cannot say this, there's a flag on the wall. The reality is, is that we are a nation who pledges allegiance to a different king, We don't disown the United States. We're thankful for it. We stand up for the principles of Jesus Christ that are in its midst. But it is not above king of the Bible. It does not go country and then God. And what he's doing here is he's zooming in and he's saying, you guys, my chosen people were supposed to be different than the other nations, but the temple you've created that was supposed to be for me It has become a place of religion that I did not even tell you to do. And this is what verses 10 through 15 are all about. Look at verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? You guys go to the temple, you sacrifice all these animals, and it just shows you to have blood on your hands because you're not worshiping me. And as we talked about last week, he finishes off this section in in, uh, 16 and says, guys, wash yourselves. He says, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, follow my heart, basically, to bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. He says, your activity, your actions, just in terms of religion, it's worthless to me. Are you showing my heart to the world around you? And he gives us this understanding by zooming in on the temple. And right off the bat, we start to see this structure that Isaiah is forming. If you're taking notes, you can write it down this way. Isaiah 1 through chapter 2, verse 4, he starts out and he says, I'm going to show you the rebellious world. Give ear, O heavens and earth. And I'm going to zoom into this sinful nation that was supposed to be my people but have rebelled. And because they have rebelled, the heart of their nation 
is a city destroyed, Jerusalem. And from that city, we know where the heart of that city is. It's in the impure temple. It's at this point that Isaiah suddenly seems to shift thought. One of the things as you're reading Isaiah is he seems a bit, as we would classify him, bipolar. One second he is screaming at his people, and this next second he's rejoicing in hope. The reason is, is because he's not a linear thinker. He thinks in these terms. A rebellious world with a nation that was supposed to be his chosen people but sinned and rebelled against him. And the heart of their nation was a city destroyed. And the heart of that city is an impure temple. In other words, Isaiah is saying, it is not what's outside of you that is impure. It's what's at the core of your heart. You can practice all the religion you want, but I need you to reason with me, he says in verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, in other words, you have blood on your hands and you are dirty with sin, you shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, in other words, you continue in your rebellion, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." He calls the people of Judah to reason with him. And you can almost hear the people, those that are truly repentant and convicted, crying out to Isaiah and to Yahweh and saying, how did we get here? How did we get here? How have we gotten to this point? Is this relevant for today or what? Yes, I'm talking politics. How did we get here? And Isaiah takes that and he launches into another short poem that is in and of itself, almost this nested chiasm. You're thinking, oh, this is getting complex. I know it is, but just follow me. And he takes this new poem and he starts to explain how Jerusalem had gotten to this forsaken place. And he answers it in the next section. And this is his main point. Go ahead and write this down. Whoops. A kingdom goes the way of its rulers. Guys, I did not intend for this to have any connection whatsoever to the fact that we are in president-picking season, but this is just how it works out, and so I think this is a word from the Lord for us. A kingdom goes the way of its rulers. Within this next small poem, Isaiah gives us a very pointed picture of the difference between a kingdom of righteousness and a kingdom of rebellion. And what he says to us is, it's, it's who you have ruling on the throne of your nation, Let's read verses 21 through 26, and then I'll help you break it apart um, so that you can see it in depth. How the faithful city, pardon me, I'm just going to read it, has become a whore. She who is full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, 
I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you, and I will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Now we read this and we think, oh, this is, this is crazy. He's not, he's not happy here, so this is bad. We got that. It's obviously beautiful poetry. What is he saying here, though? Let me walk you through it a piece at a time. He's comparing the unfaithful and the faithful cities. And remember, he's using metaphors of the city, meaning the nation, and of the temple, meaning the city. He's talking in this idea of zooming in and zooming out throughout this section to give an understanding that because the heart is sick, the whole body is. And so he uses this poem uh, that is in itself a structure of a chiasm. And he says this. This is the first thing you can write down. He shows the fall of the faithful city. He says the faithful city has fallen into depravity. And he uses this word whore because Jerusalem was his chosen bride that was to be devoted to him alone. And she had prostituted herself with all the gods of the world. And so it was the fall of the faithful city. She was righteous and just when God had chosen her, but she had become so apathetic and watered down that now, the next point, justice was replaced by murder. The just were no longer there. It had become a house of those who wanted to murder. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. How did we get there? He continues on down, zooming to the heart of the matter. And he says, the reason you got there is because your values were degraded. What you had that was of much value, silver, it had become mixed with all sorts of alloys and garbage and it no longer held its value. For all the vintners in the room, he says this, you took the best wine and you poured a bunch of tap water in it. That sounds yummy. You watered it down. How did we get here, they ask. And he goes one level deeper and he says this. He says, your princes, your princes are rebels. And they're the companion of thieves. Why is it that we like Donald Trump? Because he says what he means and he means what he says. He's rebellious. Why is it that we love Hillary Clinton? Well, she's gotten what she's wanted. She proves she can get it because she's the companion of thieves. I'm sorry, that's the truth. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. And if we stopped here, if we stopped on November 8th, (laughs) we would be without hope. (laughs) But the Lord declares, I love that phrase, circle that, guys. Our God and King declares, and who is he? Notice the byline, the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts means one who has the heavenly armies at his back waiting to release the hounds. And he's waiting for those who are his to come to him. Not only that, he is the mighty one. Forget nuclear arsenal. God has all of the power. And he declares this. 
that he is the divine sovereign. You can play around with rulers, nation states, whatever you want, but there is one king and one king alone. And he says, I will wipe away your dross and I will make you, I will make you valuable again, your values restored. And he continues on from there. And he says, I will place judges as at the first. I will restore them and your counselors as at the beginning. There will be justice restored by those who want to lead with my values, he says. And when all this is done, when all this is put in place, which will occur, we will see the rise of the faithful city. The one who is once again by covenant all the Lord's. And again, we look at this structure and we don't pay attention to just the words. We focus in on what they're zooming to, what they're going to, and what is at the core between the corrupt rulers and the divine sovereign is who rules. Just like the first part we talked about, who is seated in the the throne of the temple? Who do you worship? Here, he says, as far as your leaders go, who rules your life? See, the reason we love a president is because a president is supposed to do what we want. The reality of our country is that the president is not our king. We are. We are a democratic nation run by the people, for the people. We are the ones that want to be our own gods. And that's why we get so upset with this poor human being that we put on a pedestal that they could never, ever fulfill everything we want them to do. Because we are the gods trying to decide what we want. Who rules your life? Is it you? Is it someone or something else? And so Isaiah then takes pause to talk about the way in which the divine king will restore the kingdom. And he breaks into yet another poem. And this is going to be his point in this part. It is the desires of our heart, not our religion, that proves who rules our lives. It is the desires of our heart, not our religion, that proves who rules our lives. you got to remember that the people he's talking to and the people he's about to speak to are the people from verses 10 through 15 that are going with multitudes of sacrifices. They're always at the temple. They're given of their tithes and offerings. They're doing all the religious stuff. And yet, Isaiah is saying to them, guys, it's not enough because the desires of your heart are wrong. Let's look at verse 27. Zion, another name for Jerusalem, shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. Again, you're going to see this theme throughout the Bible, justice and righteousness, justice and righteousness, justice and righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. So you got two groups of people here. you got those that repent, that turn from the acknowledgement that they are trying to worship other gods, including themselves, and they turn to God's justice and his righteousness versus those who continue to rebel, and those that rebel will be broken because they've forsaken the Lord. And then he goes into this odd statement. He says, for they shall be ashamed of the oaks that they desired. Or he says, for you shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the garden that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. 
The people of Judah had their formal religious allegiance to Yahweh. They went to the place where Yahweh was supposed to dwell. They probably had, you know, signs on their house about Yahweh blessing them. They probably had Facebook posts, if that were such a thing back then, that said, I am a Christian, pass it on, right? They probably went to every popular Christian gathering, watched every Christian movie, read every Christian book, listened to every Christian song. But when it came to the desires of their heart, their true desires and their delight, they mixed in whatever they could worship with Yahweh to create their own private Jesus, their own private gods. And the people of Judah had desired and chosen a religion here that was debauchery. We read this and we think, oh, they were going for a nature walk. This is cool. Gardens and oaks, that's so sweet. No, guys, the big religion of the day, the, the worshipers of Ashtaroth, the fertility goddess, would go to groves of oak trees to have sexual debauchery in order to honor their gods. They would have giant orgies. They would go to gardens in the midst of nature and do the same thing. And then they would put on their Sunday best, go to their temple, and they would serve Yahweh. They were worshiping nature. Man, it is a good thing we don't do that anymore, right? We might say that, but think about this, guys. The whole reason that they worshiped that God was twofold. Number one, it allowed them their sexual deviance. It allowed them to do whatever they wanted, to gather intimacy however they wanted, and to objectify the people around them. And number two, the reason you worship the fertility God was for your own personal success. You worshiped a fertility God so that they would make you prosperous, so that you could have money and a nice house and a nice car. Sure, we don't have Asheroth poles anymore on our hearths at home, but we worship the same things. Success and money, sex. At the heart of this religion is the same principle that is at the heart of our country's issues. And so we, as the church, the chosen people of God, are faced with the same question that Isaiah posed to Judah. What are the desires of your heart? What are the desires of your heart, and are they in line with Jesus' heart? See, we read the, the, the psalm that says, trust in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart, and we emphasize the your. We say, good, I can hardly wait until God gives me the desires of my heart. But the reality is, is that what he's saying is, is trust in the Lord. He will make your heart new. And then your desires will line up with his. Now, we read this and we're broken up immediately into a couple of different types of people. Maybe there are some of you in here that this convicts you and you say, man, it is obvious by my life that I am combining things and mixing things to come up with my own private Jesus. Maybe you're a person in here that you've never even acknowledged any of this before and this is all new to you and you're going, oh my goodness, this is crazy. Maybe you're a person who's sitting here today and you're going, yeah, that's the the situation we're in and I am trying to follow Jesus and I am heartbroken at what I see. And usually it's the people that are heartbroken that are the ones that are the most convicted. And so I want to give you a, a piece about this. Guys, if your desire is after Jesus here today, You have no need of conviction. You have need of hope. If your desire is not after Jesus, then I tell you, with all the power of the most holy God and the King of kings, it is time to repent in every form and fashion immediately. 
But Jesus moves on, or excuse me, Isaiah moves on from here, and he starts to give us that hope that we need so badly. And so I want to partner with those of you here today that are sitting here going, yeah, I feel the pain. I watch the debates, (laughs) right? Or maybe you're not even worried about politics. You just see the evil in the world, and you go, oh, I I feel you. Yeah, man, my desire is Jesus, and I want him to return. And so he says this in chapter 2. You can write this down. Jesus will fully restore his kingdom and rule. We can be assured and we can have hope in this fact. And if you're in that group of people that your desire is after Jesus and the things of his heart, this is going to bring you great hope. If you're a person in here today that you're sitting on the fence going, I'm not sure who rules my life. I'm pretty sure I do, but I don't know. This is going to bring great dread. And it should. Because the great and high king does not allow worship for anyone or anything else. So this is what he says. The word of Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and he shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Now, a lot of times what I find in us as Christians is, is that those who are repentant and contrite, they spend too much time reading the judgment of God upon the rebellious. And those who are rebellious and not contrite of heart spend too much time reading about the hope to have in Jesus. We need to switch that around. This is a word for those who follow the Lord and those who desire after God. And this is what he says. And we jump back into that earlier section, that earlier structure. He has given us this idea of a rebellious world, of a sinful nation, of a destroyed uh, city and an impure temple. And he's gone into detail of how they got there. And then in verse 18, when he started to reason with them, we started to see the cleansing of that temple, the cleansing of the people. And we move from an impure temple to a purified temple. We move from a place where Jesus and and Yahweh is kicked to the side and instead he has started to cleanse the temple for those that are truly his. He says to us how can, uh, that he's going to make our sins as, uh, uh, from scarlet to white as snow. And we ask, how can you do this? And what the rest of the story that we have sitting in front of us tells us is that a man named Jesus Christ came on this earth. He ministered in pure righteousness and justice. There was no sin found in him, and yet he was killed on our behalf by being hung on a cross. And by his blood... Hebrews 9 tells us that he cleansed not only the very temple of earth, but the temple of heaven and secured for us an eternal redemption. That by his blood, he has purified what was impurified. That he has cleansed us from all sin, all wickedness. In chapter 1, he was calling Israel, and specifically Jerusalem, Sodom and Gomorrah, but by the blood of his death on the cross, Revelation tells us 
that we will one day be ushered into a new Jerusalem, a place of eternal hope where there are no more tears, there is no more injustice, there is no lack of righteousness, that God himself has a city prepared for us in which we will be present with him, a cleansed city. And he restored the nation of Israel, no longer confined by the genetic lines of being Israeli, but he opened it up to the Gentiles and the church is now the offspring of Abraham, connected with those Israelites that believe in Jesus, their Messiah. And we, as the church, have become a nation of kings and priests, sent throughout the whole world on behalf of the God that, as we see here in Isaiah 2, will unite the world so that those sinful nations that were dispersed are now brought back together in unity. And we see the restored nation of the world. See, it is so funny to me that we call ourselves one nation under God. Well, they're even trying to strip that. We are not the one nation under God. There is one nation under God, but it is made up of those whose hearts pledge allegiance to the King of kings and Lord of lords. There will be one nation in Isaiah 2. And we will gladly say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. See, he's using language here that is not literal. I've heard, I've heard uh, some people before say, oh, so this means that there's going to be a great earthquake and the mountain's going to go higher than any other mountain. It's going to be taller than Mount Everest. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is that people of this day would go and they would worship gods on mountains. Mount Olympus, for example. And he's using the language of the day to say there will come a day where all other lowercase g gods are destroyed and done away with, where all other worldviews are removed because Jesus alone sits as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And, verse 2, all the nations shall flow to it. This is not just some little sideline comment about the coming millennial kingdom that's really cool for us. This is explicit language to say God will make everything right. He will undo everything from Genesis 1 on down. He will undo the spreading of the nations, the destruction of the nations in Genesis 11. And through his promise to Abraham, he will do what he promised. He will restore the nation of Israel. And lastly, he, as the priest, or excuse me, as the prince of peace, it's hard to see it on here, we don't have a big enough screen, uh, brought us the future hope of peace on this earth. It says, a world at peace. You can write it down there. A world at peace. The future hope of peace on this earth is that Jesus will rule and reign. The evil and wickedness around us will be brought to an end. And this is not just God on a peacekeeping mission. The United Nations took verse 4, threw it on their wall, and claimed it as their own. This is not a peacekeeping mission. This is the very intention of the Garden of Eden restored in all its glory. This is the truth and the hope that we have as followers of King Jesus. And just as that chiasm, that structure of the faithful and unfaithful city pointed to that question of who is ruling, the overall structure of this section points us to the question of who sits on the throne of the temple of our lives. 
Who rules us from the inside out? Who are you ruled by? When I look at this section and all the poems broken down in it and all the crazy structure, there is one thing that as Isaiah is trying to get to us, get across to us. Who rules your life? Who do you worship? And you can tell that by the desires of your heart and how they play out in action. You guys know a little bit of my own testimony. When I was growing up, there was one thing and one thing only that I ever wanted to be a basketball player. Now, as I've gotten older and look back at my life, I realized that I was using basketball in order to gain love, in order to gain attention. I actually don't even really care about sports all that much. I know, cardinal sin. But see, the reality is, is I was doing that and I was, I was going for that success point and I, I got it. I got to play first game starting, Madison Square Garden, NBC, Thousands of people. Bill Walton had to ask me how to pronounce my name. For any of you who are basketball fans, that's a big deal. I gripped it. I grasped it. I worked out with the Blazers. I was on the Pro-Am team with Rashid Wallace and, Dame, Wallace and Damon Stoudemire. I gripped the very thing I wanted, and it was empty and fruitless and worthless. I went to one of the foremost institutions in the country, the University of Notre Dame, go Irish. And I gripped academic success. And it fell through my fingers. I married the woman of my dreams. And she still is. But she's also a human, and I realized that she could never fulfill me in what I needed to be fulfilled in, and vice versa. My whole life, I'd wanted to be married so bad wanted to be intimate. And then, just like anything else, it slipped through my fingers. And then we tried and tried to have children, and miscarriage after miscarriage came and went. Seven passed. And I thought, if only, if only I could have children, the desires of my heart would be fulfilled. And my children are wonderful kids. But they're fallen and broken, and they don't fulfill me. Well, now, if I could only start a church, if I could have a successful church plant, and I could prove to myself that I was successful in ministry. And four people has turned into what you see today, and that is not of me. That is purely by the grace of God in spite of me. And you don't fulfill me. I love you, and hopefully you love me, but you do not fulfill me. And if only I could get my graduate degree, and if only I could write some books, and if only I could be known nationwide, if only I could run for president, if only, no, never that, if only I could do something that would fulfill me. I have told people many times that if I died today, I would be very sad because I would miss all the relationships I have, but I have accomplished everything I want. There is nothing more I ever have dreamed of that hasn't been accomplished in my life, and that is not an arrogant comment. It's truth. I would die going, yeah, I've accomplished pretty much everything I wanted to, and none of it fulfilled me. Every one of those things was a desire of my heart that I begged and pleaded God for. If only I could have this thing, this idol that I bow down to every day of my life. Success in ministry, 
a spouse, children, success in a career. And none of those things should be minimized. Those are all amazingly important things. But here is my point. There is one thing you are created for, one thing that will fulfill you, and that is to face plant in worship at the foot of the King of kings and Lord of lords. The one who created us and loved us, gave us breath and life and watched us rebel and turn our backs and pursued us anyway and said, I love you, please, please come back to me. And he shed his blood. He spent years on this earth reaching out to us in justice and righteousness, saying, if only the desire of your heart would be after me. Turn with me to Psalm 37 and we'll finish here. Psalm 37, verse 1 of David, the one who had the heart of the Lord. He says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in Yahweh and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Guys, he is not saying if if suddenly you become good enough, if you start being faithful enough, if you start being obedient enough, then you'll get what you want. That is not what this is saying. It is saying you will be fulfilled in him because he will become the desire of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his or her way, over the man or woman who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger. It's a good one while you're watching the debates and YouTube and Saturday Night Live. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and the needy to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked for the arms of the wicked shall be broken but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old, yet I have seen the righteous forsaken, 
Uh, I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever.